Thank you for tuning in to the Maximum Advisor podcast. If you're a growth-minded financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice, you're in the right place. Your host, Chip Munn, brings tips and best practices based on his experiences and has guests from financial advisors to industry experts sharing wisdom with one another because we're better together. And now, Chip Munn. Welcome back to the Maximum Advisor Podcast. I'm your host, Chip Munn, and today I'm joined by my friend, Josh Harris. Josh is a lecturer and the CFP Program Coordinator at Clemson University. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chip. Looking forward to time together here. Great. Well, Josh, you know, you and I uh, met several years ago in a Facebook group and have had time to kind of get to know each other. You've spent some time working with some of our younger advisors. And one of the things that's always impressed me about you is kind of your evolution into how you ended up teaching at Clemson and then even your evolution kind of even after that. Can you tell our listeners how it is that you ended up being the, the program coordinator there at Clemson? I think it's a pretty interesting career path. Yeah, no, this is an a interesting story. The short kind of fun answer is pay attention to the Twitter because I actually saw this job posting at the university for a lecturer for the Department of Finance on Twitter. So I saw it, you know, followed up, did the application process. So Twitter is definitely valuable. But yeah, the, the longer story is I went to school, went to Wofford College here in Spartanburg, uh, where I currently live pursued a degree in religion with the goal of going into student ministry, graduated 2009, which was the best time to graduate from a liberal arts college with a, a degree in religion, really wasn't able to find work and, and just you know decided that I would jump into business. Worked for a few companies over the years, found my way into banking, and really fell in love with this personal finance field. And so I was able to kind of combine this love of students, mentoring and, and nurturing students into this teaching. And I was able to combine that and say, hey, I can go and be a college professor. I can teach. I can be in this field that I love. And I can nurture and grow this next generation of financial planners, which I, I, I love that I get to do that every day. And, and you know, doing it at Clemson University is just kind of the cream on top as well. Now, am I remembering correctly that you were working for a bank there in town, right? Doing actual personal financial kind of seminars. And one of the faculty members came in and, and watched you prior to engaging you with, uh, with Clemson in the process. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's right. I was working with PNC Bank in the Clemson area. We actually had a, a branch on campus, which I love because I didn't have to wear a suit and tie. You know, I got to come in wearing, you know, just like khakis and a golf shirt during the summer, could wear shorts because they really wanted you to build these connections with students and help them with their budgeting, learning about credit. And so a huge part of that was going into student organizations, going to the student life division and hosting these workshops, these webinars. And yeah, I was, I was given a, a workshop about protecting your identity. This was, I think, in March. And I was doing this, the workshop. And at the end, a faculty member comes up to me and says, hey, did you know we've got this, this job? We're looking for someone to do this full time to teach personal finance. And so you know, saw that, saw the job posting on Twitter, followed up, and I was hired to teach personal finance at Clemson University. 
And shortly within a couple of weeks of being hired, they said, hey, you're also getting your CFP. We need someone to coordinate this CFP program that we have. And so it just kind of took off from there. And so the program itself, we've we've grown it since 2016 when I started working there. We've grown it from 25 students to now we've got over 100 students enrolled in the program. We're looking to graduate, you know, 25 to 30 students a year that want to go into this profession, you know, either working for a bank, insurance company, you know, working in that hybrid model, working for a broker dealer or working in an independent firm, working primarily with clients, helping them achieve their dreams by managing their financial resources. It's awesome. Uh, we, so you spend a lot of time with young people, and I know that uh, having come and, and spoken to one of your groups, you all put a, and I guess as the coordinator of a CFP program as part of your, your job, you, you put a, a high level of emphasis on the importance of the CFP and really kind of continuing education. Why does that matter? What is it that, that you feel like is most important about, you know, and I guess kind of as a combination question, is the CFP the most important kind of continuing ed that an advisor could get? What are some of your thoughts on how advisors uh, can and should develop themselves in order to best serve their clients and grow their practice? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I put a lot of emphasis on the CFP. We are a CFP board registered program. So for my students, that's their goal. That's their, I'm going to graduate, sit for this exam. And that's really what they're going to kind of hold out to say, hey, I'm I'm able to practice in the industry. I'm able to, you know, I know all the stuff I need to know. I'm able to work with clients. I've passed this exam and I've got the experience, et cetera. So for undergraduate students, I, I do think the CFP is the gold standard. If I want to use the CFP board's kind of marketing phrase, I do think it is the gold standard, but I think it's a, an entry level designation. I do think that that's something that advisors that are coming into the industry right out of college, that is what they should be looking at is, you know, yes, I've got to get my licenses done on the securities side for FINRA, but I need to be looking at the CFP because it provides comprehensive education for me to deliver tax planning, insurance advice, advice on investments, portfolios, cash flow management, et cetera. But there's a lot out there. there there's a ton of different designations and there's I forget the number that FINRA recognized. I know it's it's like close to 100. There's probably even more than that out there. So it's really, really easy for an advisor to get lost in all of that, the, the alphabet soup. I really think starting with that CFP is say, this is my base level of education, base competency level. And then from there, you know, I think advisors can add on depending on what they need and what they want. For me, my, my thing is, you know, you can be an advisor that's got 30 different designations after your name. Honestly, do clients care about all those? I, I don't think they do. I think they want to know more. Is this someone that I can trust and are they competent? So if you feel that you need to get additional designations in order to seek that competency in a certain area, then absolutely. Then that, that's what you should do. But if you feel, hey, I feel very competent. I'm providing a great service to my clients. My clients trust me. Then there's, there's no need to add that alphabet soup after someone's name. Yeah, I definitely, with our younger advisors, kind of part of our program is that we encourage them to get their CFP kind of right after some of their other licensing and to go ahead and do that while you're new to the field. Because in part, when I got into the business back in the late 90s, about 18 months in, instead of getting a CFP, I got a KID. And so 
you end up in a situation it's easy to get on the end of your career where your other responsibilities mount up and the amount of study and the amount of time that's required to go back and get an advanced designation, especially one as kind of long and in-depth as the CFP can become increasingly more difficult, not just because of the course material, but because of the other things that you have going on. Yeah, I mean, you're going to spend two to three years, you know, getting the education for the CFP. You know, if you're not, if you don't have that already coming out of like an undergraduate program, you're going to spend a year, year and a half pursuing a certificate in order to qualify for the CFP exam. Then you're going to spend another six, nine, even 12 months studying, preparing for this exam, because who wants to take a seven hour exam twice? No one does. And so you want to put so much time and effort into preparing for it that it, it, eats up so much of your time. And that's that time is really valuable, but it's even more valuable when you're a seasoned professional versus you're just new into the industry. For sure. So it's good to get it done kind of upfront. One of the things that I think that we're real blessed these days is being in kind of an on-demand education environment where if there's something that we need to know, we can go out and learn it, whether there's a certificate program for it or not. But uh, But I agree that going out and really knocking out the the CFP. They've done a good job of making it, whether it's the gold standard or the most recognized, uh, for sure. So this isn't necessarily a, a CFP commercial, but uh, for those of you out there who haven't done it, particularly if for your young and, and wanting to grow, it's obviously something that we can both uh, agree is is really important. One of the things, Josh, though, that I've seen recently from you is that you've kind of gotten into kind of new territory. And I noticed that you're working on, is it a PhD in financial therapy? Is that right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a doctoral student at Kansas State University. The PhD is in personal financial planning. My focus area, though, is financial therapy, which is new and it's an exciting field. And so, yeah, that, that's what I'm, I'm focusing my studies on. And probably, you know, after that, my research will be focused in that area. And then even if I kind of jump back into private practice, it's going to be more in that financial therapy area. What is the, you know, I, I joked with you kind of earlier about whether or not I was going to need to, to put a couch in my office. What is financial therapy? Well, first, every advisor should have an, a, a couch in your office. One, it's a good place to take naps better than your, your office chair. But two, it does make for more casual, comfortable conversations with clients. And that's a, a big part of building trust, right? Financial therapy, though, is, is more than just having that couch in the office. It's, there, there's a, a definition, and I'm going to read this verbatim just to make sure I get it correct, so that we know what he follows up and says, hey, you got this definition wrong. But financial therapy is a process informed by both therapeutic and financial competencies. It helps people think, feel, and behave differently with money. Uh, in order to improve their overall well-being through evidence-based practices and interventions. So, you know, that's the formal definition. Here's what I say, my own definition. It is bridging the worlds of mental health therapy and the worlds of financial planning because it recognizes that we're not making these decisions in isolation. We're not making investment decisions, decisions about insurance, decisions about leaving a legacy to our kids or grandkids or to our alma maters, right? We're not making these decisions in isolation. We're making these decisions based on some kind of emotion, some kind of an emotional history, some kind of a family dynamic, a relationship dynamic. And so if we ignore one half of this equation, 
we're really not doing our clients the best service possible. So that, that's why I love financial therapy because it is bridging these two things and recognizing that we are emotional creatures. We make decisions based on our emotions. And so we need to recognize those emotions. So can you give me an example uh, of what that would look like in practice? Sure. So a, r- a really common example that I've seen that I've talked a lot about is if you've got a, a, a couple and they're, you know, they're, they're pre-retirees, they're maybe in their late 40s up to their 50s, and they're kind of thinking, hey, we're, you know, we're 10, 15 years out from retirement. They've built up significant assets. And if they've only ever had their, their child or one of their children listed as a beneficiary, but then something happens in the family, and there's some kind of a family issue, and then they come in to talk to an advisor and say, we actually want to remove one of our kids from our, from our will and from a beneficiary on our account. Well, an advisor could just go through with that and remove the beneficiary and kind of recommend them to work with an attorney to revise their will. But a financial therapist would take it one step further and really dive into, well, what's What's driving this need for a change? There's some kind of a family dynamic that's going on that's going to impact this couple financially. And so we need to understand that that dynamic and either follow through with the client's wishes or help them kind of reconcile that to say, well, there's different approaches we can use from a financial standpoint in order to honor your decision. But we also want to kind of reconcile that, you know, this is an emotional decision. For sure. I've often told not only, you know, I have, as you know, a, a son uh, at Clemson who's a, a sophomore there and who, who thinks that someday he might be interested in our business, that if I were doing it over again, uh, I would definitely consider a, whether it's a minor or some sort of additional training in psychology. It, it's a big part, I think, of as we have migrated from investment management and that being the sole focus that folks would come to, say, my senior partner when I first started, uh, Bob Mitchell, who started back in 1970, who was literally kind of the old school stockbroker. You know, the difference between folks who came to him solely for investment management and the kind of folks that we are uh, working with today who are looking at more holistic planning, it's definitely, definitely an emotional thing. Yeah. Well, and, and even another example, I mean, you've got, uh, you know, a kid in, in school, if you were to rewind the clock 10, 15 years ago, and you've got a, a couple that's kind of in that same spot where they say, hey, our, you know, we've got a young child and we're thinking forward about education. And you've, as an advisor, been primarily working with, you know, either the husband or the wife. And let's just say it's the husband. And the husband says, well, I absolutely want to, you know, pay for everything for my child for education because my family did that for me. And I think that's a really important thing. But then all of a sudden in the office, the wife speaks up and says, no, like I had to pay for my own school. I think that's more important. And so now you've got this interesting dynamic that's going on. And how are you going to reconcile that? Most advisors would throw their hands up and say, well, y'all figure out what you want to do. Come back in and tell me. And that's really just doing a disservice to clients. I think being able to bridge that gap and say, well, let's, let's talk about why you have these opinions, why we have these different values, and let's really try to reconcile this. What would you think, Josh, is the benefit to an advisor who, let's say that that uh, they've been in the business uh, for 10 years and have a, you know, a, a relatively well-established practice, but are wanting to kind of push forward and and really grow, what do you think the benefits are to going back and, again, whether it's financial therapy or a CDFA for helping people with divorce, what, what do you think 
some of the benefits are to an experienced advisor going out and really diving into uh, getting some additional kind of education and training. Yeah. I think the biggest advantage for, for a seasoned advisor, for someone who's been in the profession for a while, is it's just going to allow them to deliver better quality service to their clients. So, you know, the CDFA is a phenomenal designation. And if an advisor has kind of found themselves into a little bit of a niche or a niche, whichever way you want to go there, if they've kind of found themselves in this market where they're working a lot with divorced couples or, you know, with uh, couples that are going through divorce, and it's not something they pursued intentionally, but if they go out and get that CDFA and pursue that education specifically around divorce finances, they're just going to be better equipped to provide a higher level of service to our clients, which is what we're all about. We want to provide the best level, the highest level of service within our own kind of field. I'll be honest, not everyone is going to pursue financial therapy. It is, it is going to be a, uh, a thankless, you know, probably lesser paid field than financial planning, financial advisory work. It's super, super important. I think that every advisor, though, out there could be a little bit more therapeutically informed. They could not provide therapy, but be more therapeutic to their clients. You know, have that couch in the office, yes, but have more trusted conversations. Be that trusted advisor. Be that person that when the client's going through an experience, they want to talk to you. They want to share, you know, that them and their spouse or them and their child had a fight over money last week. You want them to come to you because that's going to allow you to be a better informed advisor to them. I think that uh, one of the real key benefits, as I see it, and in my experience in watching advisors as they grow in getting additional education is really as important as the knowledge is. It's the confidence that they gain from feeling like whether it's the ability to use some form of marks after their name or just feeling more confident that they're going to know the answer it is really, really important in the growth process of, of, uh, of advisors. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with you. It's in, like for me, when I pursued the CFP, going through like the tax planning, which is my weakest area, and I tell my students this all the time, like that's my weakest area and I know it. So if I'm in practice and I'm working with a client, I am never going to do tax planning without additional assistance with a CPA, an enrolled agent kind of being there in the office with me, just because I know that's not an area I'm strong in. But what I learned from that process is one, my weakness, but two, where do I go for those, for that knowledge, for that resource? I know now how to look up things in the tax code. I know how to work with a CPA and understand what they're looking at. So yeah, if it's not knowing the answer, it's knowing where to get the answer for your client. For sure. And, and I think that really we're in the business uh, of asking better questions and the more education that we can get from whatever source, really spending time working on ourselves, I think that we can put ourselves in a position to be able to ask better questions. And the key to getting better answers is is better questions. And so, yeah. you know, in my experience uh, from some of the advanced uh, designations that I studied for, being, like you said, knowing where to, to look for the answers and knowing the right questions to ask to be able to draw out what it is that you need from a client to be able to effectively figure out how to best help them. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and sometimes the best question is not a question at all. Sometimes it's silence, just giving your client space, you know, allowing them to take that conversation wherever they need to take it. 
And sometimes the best question is a statement. The tool I always give a lot of my students when they're when they're in the class is if you just if you prompt a client instead of saying, you know, do you have kids? Why don't you prompt them with this? Say, tell me about your family. And then they can go any way they want. They could talk about their kids, their grandkids, their favorite nephew, their, you know, interesting cousin who, you know, wants to do day trading and thinks that's what financial advisors do. So, you know, there's prompting a client sometimes is the best kind of question. And so I do think pursuing that knowledge around asking better questions is so crucial in, in our field. And everybody has a story. And yeah. you know, as I'm, I'm staring at my notes and I, and I look at the word uh, therapy, I, I think about the folks that I know uh, who have spent time you know, w- with a non-financial <laughs> therapist. And really, a lot of it is just uh, having someone that you can open up to and tell your story. And, and ultimately, right, that, that's what we're looking to have our clients do because that's how we can best help them is understanding their story and, and how we can apply financial instruments or planning techniques to help them kind of navigate between that current and future self so that, that their story ultimately over time becomes the story that they would want to have. Yeah, absolutely. Josh, you have, uh, you've obviously been very successful in uh, parlaying, I must admit that you know, for folks who are uh, trying to do seminars for to drum up recurring revenue, you know, doing a financial awareness uh, workshop that gets you a teaching job uh, <laughs> at a university is it's got to rank right up there with the most successful story that I've heard of. When you think about you know, it, we're an action-oriented podcast, and so one of the things that I want our listeners to be able to leave with is something that they can think on and do today to, to make themselves or their practice uh, better. If you could give one piece of advice today on, on how an advisor could take kind of these ideas and, and this conversation and apply it to their practice today to take action, what's something that you'd suggest? Yeah, I, I think the the first step that any advisor, whether they're three years in or twenty years in, to their their practice working with clients is reflection. You know, take a step back, hit pause, and really think about where do they want their business to go. Is it into a specific niche? Is it some level of service? And then really be honest and reflect on what skills do they have, and and how can they take those current skills to get to that kind of future dream of a, of a practice. And if there's a deficit, you know, like if someone wants to work in divorce finances, well, you need to really become an expert in that field. If someone really wants to work with, you know, emotionally charged financial decisions, then pursuing more education and financial therapy is absolutely crucial. So I, I really think that advisors just need to take that first step and reflect on where do they want to be and what are the kind of necessary skills that they need to pick up in order to get there. And I think from there, it becomes super clear as far as pursuing continuing education, pursuing additional designations, degrees, even just going to specific conferences. I think that you're spot on. I, you know, the most important thing that any of us can do is be honest with ourselves and, and do what I'll call kind of a gap analysis with our clients of, of where we are versus where we want to be and helping them identify solutions. And, and I think to your point, for an advisor, spending time doing that exact same process with regards to 
uh, our education and and skill set is uh, is crucial. I don't remember, and I don't want to misattribute the quote, but it reminds me of one of the things that I heard. And uh, again, I don't know if it was Abe Lincoln or or who, but said, you know, if I had six hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend five hours sharpening my axe. And I think that, you know, the idea of this education that we're talking about is is just that. It's sharpening the axe, sharpening the saw in order to be prepared, you know, to make ourselves the most successful that we can be when we're when we're spending time with our clients. Yeah, absolutely. Josh, I appreciate you uh, spending time with us today, kind of educating us on the power and the importance of, of education. You have uh, attained a level that uh, that most of us might aspire to, not only an, an opportunity to, to teach these things in a classroom setting, but going out and really exploring uh, what I think is a, a new frontier in terms of the financial therapy space. And so I appreciate you uh, kind of walking us through w- what that's like and interesting for me and for our listeners. And uh, I really appreciate you sharing, dude. Absolutely. It's been a blast. I'm already looking forward to coming on again, hopefully. Well, uh, we look forward to having you again. And uh, I will talk to you real soon. Thanks, Chip. To download what we believe is the single most important marketing, selling, and positioning tool for your practice, go to MaximumAdvisor.com slash scorecard now. Subscribe to this show anywhere you listen to podcasts or at MaximumAdvisor.com.